the reading on which the message is based is uh, from Matthew, as you can see. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. So it's Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse uh, 5. Now, this morning I'm deliberately going to read from my Geneva Bible, but then don't worry, we'll revert to the ESV. I'm reading the Geneva Bible for, for a reason. So Matthew 6, beginning at verse 5. And when thou prayest, be not as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, and in the corners of the streets, because they would be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou prayest, enter into thy chamber. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And when ye pray, use no vain repetitions as the heathen. For they think to be heard for their much babbling. Be ye not like them, therefore, for your Father knoweth whereof ye have need before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, even in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye do not forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also. If ye do forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye do not forgive men their trespasses, no more will your Father forgive your trespasses. So today we are looking at this, this section known as the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Now today it's not so much an analysis of, you know, each word, each verse so much. Uh, rather I intend to do more of an, an overview and try to focus on the structure rather than the details. The, um, the Lord's Prayer is very uh, well known and among the general population it is, it is more, more the case that they would, they would be familiar with the, the older version they learned in school, uh, which is uh, slightly different from what we have here today. Now, very early on in the uh, church's history, so in the first, in the first century or two, we find that the church adopted this and started to use it word for word. And so 
what I'd like to propose today is that we should see this rather as a model, a model of prayer, rather than something to be recited and hopefully, um, by the end, hopefully I will have convinced you that that is its, uh, that is its purpose. Above all, what this shows us is Jesus' high view of prayer. He loved prayer and he loved to encourage others to pray. The prayer is Jewish in tone, which might surprise you that I say this, Jewish in its tone. Any Jew would be happy to pray that prayer. But if a Jew was here this morning, they would not be able to say Amen to my opening prayer because it was full of, you know, it was it mentioned the Christ or the Spirit and so on. So it was it was Jewish, and so in one sense it was traditional, but there was some something different about this. It would have struck the disciples as simple, not something they were used to. This prayer was unusually straightforward and unusually brief. And as an experiment, I, I read, I read the, uh, the prayer at a natural pace and it came in as about a minute, just under a minute. So brief. And of course the disciples would have been used to hearing Jewish prayers which were both long and quite convoluted. Because the Jews felt that the longer the prayer was, the, the better more likely God would hear them. So we have two sort of, uh, two aspects here. We have a traditional and something novel as well. And so I'd like to argue that this prayer sits in a period of transition from the old to the new and wasn't therefore meant uh, to be a prayer that was held to for the, the, for the, the life of the, the Christian church. I think Jesus deliberately made this short and simple to, to shock the disciples in the same way as you remember Jesus said, if you feel like sinning by stealing and you feel you can't control yourself, take an axe, lay your arm on the table and take that hand off and throw the hand in the bin. Now of course Jesus didn't expect anyone to cut their own hand off, but it would have jolted people into understanding that Maybe they need to rethink their position. And so Jesus here with the disciples is saying, there you go, that short, simple prayer, that's okay. And that would teach them something. So the context here of this is all about warnings. You know, you've done it this way, you've heard it done that way, but I'm telling you, do this instead. When you give to charity, don't announce it. Do it in secret. And then forget you've done it. It, it just, he's, Jesus is overturning everything. And of course, he has a go at the pagans who, who babble on, babble on, <laughs> who babble on, thinking that if they just repeat things, they'll be heard. It reminds me of Roman Catholicism and Hinduism, which uses repetitions, uh, repetitions to be heard by God. And Jesus is saying, that's not how it works. I'd say, friends, that we need to 
take note of the, of the simplicity and brevity of this prayer because, let's face it, if someone has a particular ability to pray in an evangelical church, the prayer might be 10 or 15 minutes long and it will be not like mine. It won't be short and not very sophisticated. It will be long. It will be full of scriptures that have been memorized down the years. It will be eloquent and it will be a delight to hear. Dare I say, even the world would love to hear. It would be like a, something of a performance. And therein lies the danger. For us, we need to be careful. We need to understand that long prayers filled with scriptures are okay. They are fantastic. But you've got to be on your guard against that temptation to show off. Because it is very easy to show off, even in the service of God, even in prayer itself. We can show off. We can pray in such a way as we're looking out for the amens and the, the nodding of heads as confirmation that our prayer is a really good one. So we, we are to beware. I read from my old Geneva Bible. The King James Bible reads very similarly. And then the modern versions tend to make this alteration. Luke, Luke the historian, records another occasion when Jesus gave this prayer to his disciples. But the doxology at the end was missing. You know, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory was missing in Luke. So the translators of the modern versions think, well, that's probably more likely what it was. Maybe Luke, maybe uh, Matthew added that bit in at the end. And what I'd say today is it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. That whether you, that, that, that doxology, yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, is a principle that's already in scripture. So you don't have to worry about did Jesus give two different versions of the prayer or did Matthew put this in, uh, you know, as, as something extra. It really doesn't matter. It's there and we make use of it, uh, you know, if it's a benefit to us. Uh, but... We can also see it as a transitional prayer because in Luke, the disciples said, can you teach us how to pray? You know, like John the Baptist helped his disciples to pray. Can you help us in the same way? And then Jesus gave that prayer. And it, it is, it's like a John the Baptist type of prayer. It fits right in with John the Baptist's thinking. He loved the Father in heaven. He wanted the kingdom to come. He was baptizing people for repentance of sins. So John would have been 100% behind that. You don't need any knowledge of the atonement or any of those things to come. You could, you could say amen to that. And that's again why I say this is a transitional prayer. It's probably also better we call it the disciples' prayer because uh, it's not a prayer that Jesus would pray, is it? Jesus would not pray, forgive us for our sins. Because Jesus was sinless. He's giving it to them. He's not using it himself. In fact, he never does. He never prays anything sort of like that. Except in terms of the structure of it. Which, which we're looking at today. I do note, I did, I did allude to this earlier, that uh, the, the world, um, especially in, um, well certainly in the UK and America and the West, uh, it's, it's well known. It's well known, this prayer. Because we were taught it, in my day, we were taught it in school. And the whole school would say it out loud. 
And I'm sure in certain parts of the world that's still the practice. You may have, you may have wondered why it says, uh, even in the King James Bible, forgive us our debts. Because I bet you were listening, I bet when you heard that, you thought, that doesn't sound right, Paul, are you sure you've uh, got that right? Isn't it? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who trespass against us. Where did that come from? It wasn't out the Bible. It was out the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. So they took the Lord's Prayer and they, I assume, said, debts, that might give the wrong impression in this day and age. We're not talking about people owing other people money. We're talking about sins. So let's use a word that Jesus himself uses later on, trespasses or sins. So all the same thing. But the Book of Common Prayer is probably a bit less likely to be um, cause confusion than, than in the King James Bible for that particular word. But anyway, the world loves it. The world loves to say it. And um, they uh, have memorised it. And I, I'll just say this in passing, that I find it quite curious the way the world prays this prayer. They say it like a chant. Have you noticed? They say it as a sort of uh, chant. They go, um, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and glory, forever and ever. Amen. And of course, the, the breaking of these sentences for some reason, I don't know how... It, it, it happened but the sentences are you know obviously lead us not into temptation but rather deliver us from evil for thine is the, the kingdom the power and the glory forever amen that's, that's, that's how it's supposed to be said but they, they, they chant it and that's not my complaint you know that's a habit but what's, what's really ironic in all this is that uh, the world is saying a prayer that was meant as a communal prayer. So the people who don't come and worship with us, who stay at home by themselves and think it's okay to pray at home, it's just as good, they are praying a prayer which is, lead us not into temptation. Well, who's the us? There is no us, because they don't belong to a body of believers. This is a communal prayer. So it is in every way unsuitable for the world to be using anyway. God doesn't have isolated professors of religion sitting at home. He likes to see people interact with others and be part of a family. We're going to, we're going to jump into this now in this prayer. And there's, as you can see from the sheets there, I've got seven brief points on, on different aspects of the prayer. So it starts with an address. It starts with addressing God. We direct our prayer, we say who we're speaking to. That's a matter of courtesy, even amongst people. And so especially in the case of God, we acknowledge we are talking to him. I like writing letters, as you know. I am a tech person, but I still love to get my fancy paper, fountain pen, and write letters, put it in an envelope, nice stamp and, I, and it needs an address it would be no good without that address we need to know where it's aimed at and so here we say our father our father and he's the best person to go to 
it's uh, it's uh, it's to be at least noted, and I have mentioned this before. But while we're here, it, it, we should at least take note that Jesus um, didn't uh, ask people to pray to the Spirit, our Holy Spirit in heaven, uh, and neither did He really say that we should say um, pray our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven and so on. Now there's an exception to that where we seem to be allowed to pray to Jesus, never the Holy Spirit. There seems to be an exception, but the, the overall trend, if you like, in the New Testament is that it's our prayers are addressed to the Father. Think about how this makes you feel when you say our Father. Our Father, it's, it's intimate. It's acknowledging some close connection between us and God in heaven. Our Father, it's, it's about closeness. But it immediately continues with the words in heaven. And so our minds, are, our hearts are immediately uh, taken to a God who's in heaven. And so on the one hand, we have a God who's very near and intimate. And on the other hand, we have a God who is still the God of heaven, the all-glorious, all-powerful God. And so one sort of qualifies the other. And so if we, if we, we, we err, if we think our Father is just a friend and not the God of heaven, and we also, we also err if we think of God as an all-powerful God, but impersonal. We have to believe both things are true. And when we come to God in prayer, we must have that attitude, that balance within us, that balance. Yes, he's near. Yes, he loves me intently, but he's still a God to be feared. And that's what God wants, the balance. The next thing mentioned is praise, hallowed be your name. We've addressed the Father and now we come to praise him. It's all about God first. And I said about structure, all our prayers should begin with God. We, we, we focus on him first before we even mention our own worries or requests. We start with him. We give him glory first because that is what is right. Let your name be sanctified. Not only his name as in his reputation, but everything about him, everything associated with him, we should recognise it as holy and want it to be glorified. That's, that's what the praise is about. We're to have this reverent attitude for everything. Everything God stands for is nature and his work. Everything is to be glorified. And why does he deserve praise? Well, where would we start? He created a cosmos from nothing. He created in particular a planet Earth, spectacular in its creative uh, brilliance, beautiful. He created creatures and the chief of those being mankind. He created them. And then the pinnacle of his work, 
from amongst that body of men, he elected to save some and glorify them with eternal life and forgiveness of sins forever. Do we have nothing to praise God for? <laughs> if, if we had a million years, uh, and we will, uh, if we had a million years to spend in nothing but praise, we'd still never uh, give God the praise that is, is rightly His. We praise Him. The prayer continues with mention of the kingdom. Lord, your kingdom come. We want your kingdom to come. We're still talking about God. We haven't started talking about ourselves yet. It's still about God. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. That, uh, that principle of God's kingdom coming is um, mysteriously absent from an awful lot of uh, the, the prayer life of the church. It's not a concept you hear much of uh, outside of outside of this. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come. Christians have a, a certain um, uh, a certain idea of what happens, you know, end times uh, ideas, and so I think in the minds of people, it's a case of Lord, take us away and then come and incinerate this place, please, quickly. It's almost the exact opposite of what Jesus says to pray for. Not take us away and then destroy what's left, but come. So rather than thinking of going up, it's heaven coming down to us. What Jesus said. And what does that look like though, really? You know, heaven coming down to us. What does it mean for the kingdom to, to be seen on earth? Well, friends, wherever we have an individual who belongs to God standing on this earth, he's a member of God's kingdom or shape. They're a citizen of God's kingdom. And that person, uh, through their service for God, has an impact on their environment around them, the people they know, the family or the, the workmates or whatever it is. It could be an example of life, it could be evangelism, but they have this influence, this circle of influence. And you have there a little planting of the kingdom of God on earth. Now multiply that by all the millions of people walking around today who belong to God. You have there the kingdom coming down. And insofar as God blesses us with more conversions and more influence, then the kingdom of God has come. And so that's what we pray. We want the influence of heaven here. God saves people. Naturally, they speak about Jesus to others. God uses that to bring in other people into the kingdom. And then that repeats and repeats and repeats. And the number of God's people saved is increasing day by day. So the disciples are encouraged here to pray that what Jesus began with his ministry would be uh, continued. What they are participating in with experience in, in fullness. The next one is about bread in the prayer. The next one says, um, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, daily, that word uh, has caused some uh, debate, a 
what it exactly means. It's 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 either rare or this is the only place it's used. Can't remember. But there's been some debate. But I think the way we have it here is is correct because that idea can be seen elsewhere in scripture, which is that we're to lean on God for the day ahead, not for the year ahead. So it means that primarily it's about um, bread. By, by extension, it is food. By extension, it's drink. And we could argue that by extension, it is the, the basics for life, you know, shelter, clothing. We can say that. Material needs, in other words. And why, why daily bread then, if that's correct? Why daily bread? Why do we not say, Lord, I, I'd like to pray for blessings and material needs and spiritual needs for the month ahead. So, Lord, that will save me having to come to you every day. Can we just do the month's worth of blessings and then I can just go and off and live my life? Well, of course, that's not... You can go back to the Old Testament to see that God wants you to rely on the heavenly manner of his day by day. That's what he wants. Not store it up day by day. So we pray daily. Why? God could have created us where we had no material needs. He could have created humans that didn't require food or clothes or shelter or water. He created us with a need for things. Then he supplies those things. And he wants us to lean on him hard so that we ask for those things every day. So that we acknowledge that every single mouthful of food we have is given to us by him. I would just say one more thing about bread, which is that in the scriptures, bread is used as a metaphor for the word of God. It's used for the Bible, the scriptures. The word bread is, uh, symbolizes the, the scriptures. And the word bread is used for Jesus himself. Because Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven who came down to earth to give life to men. And so, this prayer might be about material needs first and foremost, but I don't think it's at all unreasonable to also consider that there's a reference in there to the Word of God and Christ himself in that petition. The next one's about forgiveness. Why do we need forgiveness? Why do we need forgiveness? Well, this is really strange, but the Lord's people have been forgiven of all their sins, going back to when they were in the mother's womb. They've been forgiven for all their sins. They're forgiven for the sins they've committed today. They're forgiven for the sins that they are going to inevitably commit for the rest of their lives. We have forgiveness. We have God as our Father. We have a saviour. We have eternal life. We have a cast iron guarantee of a paradise that will never ever end. Now, despite all that, we manage still to sin. Despite all that. That's how we, that's how we express thanks to God, we sin every day. We just can't, we just can't stop it. We are like sin junkies 
we, uh, if that term makes sense, sin junkies, we, we are addicted. And so, God, knowing our weakness, says that if you confess your sins, God is faithful to forgive you your sins. And so you go to him every day. We go to him every day. And we own up to our sinfulness. We may throw in some examples just to acknowledge, just to hold our hands up and say, I know what I did there. I know I sinned while I was praying. I know I sinned while I was talking to my Christian brother, whatever it might be. And God will forgive. But this is heavily conditioned by this one principle. We are forgiven according to how we forgive. So, there's a huge problem because there's not one of us does not have difficulty uh, with certain people, certain difficult people, certain maybe nasty people. They may be completely vile. And yet you have no right to hate them. You are to love them and pray for them as far as you can. And you forgive them. You forgive them. You don't forgive them if they come, only if they come on their knees and beg you for forgiveness. You do what Jesus did. You forgive them freely. Okay. Now, there's a sort of theological problem here which I need to mention. It, it seems to be saying that if I have an area of my life where I am unforgiving, then God will withhold forgiveness from me. Now, that, that's, 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 that's worrying that. Does that mean my salvation is in jeopardy? because of this particular sin. That's not the case. That's not the case. God, God has seen how I've had difficulty forgiving others, saving other people. And yes, it, that comes under the banner of his forgiveness. So what does it mean? It's trying to make the point that God's genuine blood-bought people are a forgiving people. And although they might not do it perfectly, they should. They should do it perfectly. They should forgive freely. And so this two-way process is like this. Our forgiveness of others, it rises up to God like a wonderful fragrance up to heaven to him. And he, as it were, responds by dropping down forgiveness into our souls for our sins. That's what he likes to do. And here is a reminder that if you are unforgiving towards anyone, you need to be scared. You need to, you need to put a big question mark over your salvation if you are unable to forgive people. We move on then to the next one. Last one, holiness. There's these two things, you know. Lead us, don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Evil would be anything bad, anything we don't like, anything uncomfortable, any illness, any trouble in life, anything we go through in life that's unpleasant to us. That is a kind of an, e an instance of evil. And we can ask to be delivered from evil, but will God bring us through life without any trouble? No. He tells us as much. So, on the one hand, we're to pray for it, 
but we're to fully expect that God will introduce troubles and evils into our life. Why? For our good. That Bible there, the Geneva Bible, says all things work together for the best, not just for good, for the best, for those who love God. All things. And God uses these instances of evil to help you and to bring you out the other end a better, better person, a better Christian. But still we pray, Lord, help us not to sin. Help us in our temptation. Help us to avoid sin in the first place, to focus, focus on it, have a plan how we're going to get through the next situation so that we don't sin like we did last time. I thought some people might have this question in their minds about why we are asking God not to lead us into temptation. The question might be, uh, surely God does not lead us into temptation anyway. The scriptures say God doesn't tempt us. God doesn't whisper into our ears. Have you seen that over there? That's, that, that's something to be interested in. God doesn't tempt man to sin. But above that, he is sovereign. He is sovereign in all things. And the truth is, if it's acceptable to you, the truth is this, that God leads me into circumstances where I will be tempted. He provides a way out. He provides prayer. He gives me an ability to um, avoid the temptation. But it's not an area where God has no control. God is sovereign over all things. And he is sovereign over those situations. And I tell you, friends, I'm glad. I'm glad that that's not an area where God has no control in our temptation. I'm glad he rules even over those situations. Because I know if that situation's under God's control, it will go exactly as planned. And it will be for my best. It will be for my ultimate good, somehow. So it's a comfort to us. So be comforted by that. Knowing that all the trials in life, whatever, are uh, under the sovereign will of God. So we finish with this, what we call doxology. It's a, it's a, it's a phrase, it's a, it's a little mini uh, expression of praise to God. Which of course is not in the modern Bibles, but it is in, in the, the, the older ones. And we're not going to argue about it, but it's, it's true. It's something we should pray. May yours be the, the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen, Lord. Amen. That's something, that's something we should heartily pray anyway. Our ability to praise God in any way is limited. You're limited. We don't have the vocabulary to praise God good enough. We don't have the spiritual heights within ourselves to praise God in a way that he deserves. But these poor, mumbled praises that we offer to God are accepted by him. Completely accepted by him. Why? Because they come and they come to him in the name of Christ. And Christ himself, as the one who mediates for us, commends our words to the Father 
accept them for my sake. And so he forever stands there, taking and sanctifying and perfecting our praises to God. So overall, what, what is this? This is um, the prayer then is about it's really the prayer is about the ultimate introduction of what God's purpose has always been for this world and its people. But I argued it was a, a transitional type of prayer from the old to the new, from the age of Judaism to the age of the gospel, the gospel age. This is a transitional time and it was a transitional prayer. This prayer was given to certain people at a certain moment in time, in a certain situation, for a certain purpose. And so we should not ignore the fact that there is no mention of Christ in that prayer. So when people say the Lord's Prayer as if it's the, the, the height of, of any, you know, the best prayer you can pray, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit's work. There's no mention of the atonement, the cross. There's no mention of Christ himself. There's, there's no record that the apostles um, continued this. I bet you that when Jesus left, their prayers were different than this. Their prayers were improved because their prayers in, included the resurrection of Christ and his ascension and his interceding for us at the right hand of God. Their prayers were about to be expanded and beautified. And so that's why I say that this prayer as it stands has had its day my friends if i was in some prison cell jailed for my faith and i was at the end of my tether and my my head wasn't functioning properly it may be that i would, I would fall back on the memorization of that prayer i can't think of what to pray but i can say this prayer so you see it's not without value but you can also see that the prayers in this gospel age are so much more full than, than, than that type of prayer was. I just, friends, want you to take maybe one big thing from this today is that it's the, not the individual words we've said today, it's about the structure. So remember, friends, we, we address God, we praise him, we talk about his activity, his work and when we finally get round to our petitions then we can come to God uh, and so if we stick to that order if we stick to that order it's, it's more glorifying to God and that, that's why we should start with him and then finish with ourselves prayer takes time and effort and friends when I'm at home and I know what I'm about to pray. Sometimes I'd rather do 10 other things than pray because there's effort. I have to confess stuff I've done wrong. It's sometimes not the first thing you want to do. And sometimes I can't wait. I can't wait to pray. But remember, Jesus puts a priority on prayer and so should we. Amen. Mm -hmm.